Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How are you now? Broadcasting from the studios of Magellan Asset Management on Gadigal Land. It is the Theory of Thing Investment Podcast, Season 8, Episode 1. New name, new ideas, new strategy, new guests here, absolutely. And remember... If it's talked about enough, it's a thing. This show is brought to you by the Australian Mutual Funds Exchange, doing amazing work, uh, being able to give people access to managed funds in Australia and around the world, which is great. Everything in this podcast is general in nature. The advice that is given is general in nature. If it is, if it sounds like advice, it's general. Look, I'm not going to specify this anymore. Time. My name is James Whelan. I am an investment manager at VFS Group. I'm a white male, age 41, wearing a grey suit, white shirt and a blue tie. I am joined by Heath Moss of HLM Investments. Uh, Heath, how are you now over in Adelaide? Uh, very, very well, mate. Uh, we're really busy over here with the AFL Gather Round. So everyone, everyone's coming here from all over Australia and it's a huge hit last night with the Crows uh, getting off with a big win. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Absolutely thrashing it. We'll get into the footy at the end. Make mm. sure you've got your footy tips ready, Emma. I've got my footy tips ready. Okay. Now, uh, this episode is being recorded on the 14th of April, 2023 AD, it is 11.08 AM on a Friday, Sydney time. And I'll tell you what, I'm a few I'm a few hours away from checking out for a week. I'm going to be down at the farm very soon, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, speaking of crows in Adelaide, actually, Heath, and speaking just, just sort of going a little bit off piece here, uh, I got a stern, not a stern message, but I got a direct message from David Koch regarding my tweets uh, about Port Adelaide, <laughs> and I would like to take this opportunity, if I may, to apologise to absolutely no one for absolutely nothing. I still hate Port, and I still think that we were robbed of that game at the end. But I still think that the Swans are just just lost. But anyway, David, if you're listening, mate, I will. Uh, I'll never listen, and I will just keep doing. It. Uh, but I did get a really good welcome. I mean, the, the welcome to country before the Swans game was just incredible. And yep. I think that I was, uh, I think that I was welcome there that night. I'm not sure I'm going to be welcomed back by the umpires after my my form third row third row back behind the goal uh, behind the goal square on the other night. So, but um, that is fantastic. Um, and I think that though we'll get into that at the end. So, my guest today, um, Emma Fisher from Early 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 Funds Management. Um, the uh, she runs the Early Australian Share Fund, AASF, formerly uh, originally of Namura, working on buy side, buy side, sell side, working on sell side, uh, then went to Fidelity uh, to, to to join the dark side of the of the buy side side, and then <laughs> over here to Early, uh, and has been running an Australian Share Fund now for how long? Uh, well, so the fund will have been running for five years. In June. Five years in June. Um, Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, let's just get straight into it. Now, Heath, anytime you want to kick in with a question, mate, you go ahead and do it. Um, and we'll just sort of loosely sort of talk about background, strategy, what's ahead for the future, and sure. how you come up with your ideas, which is great. Now, first off, your origin story. We always like to hear about what, where did the big break happen? Some people say, oh, well, you know, it was actually my, my dad got me a job in the thing, and, and that's interesting. Other people say, I, I work from the mailroom up. Um, yeah. Which is always the story that I really love to hear. What's how did you how did you crack into this? Well, my dad definitely did not get me a job. My dad is not. I think he genuinely believes that investing is gambling. <laughs> We've often said this, and I say, "Oh, it's not gambling if you know what you're doing, Dad." And he gives me this look that implies he doesn't think I do know what I'm doing. I've seen, I've seen people sitting around the roulette table at, at, <laughs> at Crown at two o'clock in the morning who think they know what they're doing as well. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. Um, so, no, we, I didn't grow up in a family with anyone that really knew anything about investing. It, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't really a thing in my household. My mum was a primary school principal um, and my dad works in industrial relations. Mm -hmm. um, so I got interested in investing for the first time through my grandfather. He was probably the only one in our family that had any interest in investing. Sorry, I should just say also I don't normally sound like this. I do have a croaky voice at the moment, so let's hope that that holds out. Um, so he 
so I remember one time he came in and gave me a Commonwealth Bank annual report and he had it open to the board of directors and he said, look how many women there are on the board. I think you could do this one day. You know, I was at uni. I had absolutely no credentials. Um, Never had anyone on the board of CBA either. But anyway. No, no. <laughs> I think, oh, no, actually, it probably was before the time. That, um, this would have been during the Ralph years, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was a hell of a guy. Anyway. So sorry. No, 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 no. no. I, I, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't even know what an annual report was. You know. Okay. So I didn't. I wasn't looking at these names. They didn't mean anything to me. Um, but that kind of spawned a conversation of like, what is this? And he was like, well, when you're a shareholder in a company, they send you an annual report in the mail that tells you how the business is doing every year. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, like we. I've always had CBA shares. They're the only shares. Like he gave them me, my sister, and my brother. He gave us all CBA shares. Yeah. And I remember like. You know, every now and then I'd look them up in the paper. Remember, you used to get all your information from the paper. Um, and, you know, we got a dividend check for every now and then. Yeah. Um, that was sort of like in high school my exposure to investing. Uh, so he, he kind of was explaining what an annual report was and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I kind of did a little bit more work, opened up a Comsec trading account, bought $500 worth of shares, which was my sort of life savings at the time. I was at checkout chick at Woolies. Um, and just loved it. Like I remember I'd just refresh the page watching my life savings go up and down. Because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I think I, I bought a bunch around that time, so I can never really remember what the first stock I bought was, but like I, I own like things like Orica, um, QBE, I think. Like literally if you'd asked me my thesis, it was, I don't know, I'd heard the name before. I used to pick them based on the letters, like my, yeah. wife, like my wife picking racehorses really. Yeah, yeah. there was there – was, there was no thesis behind it. And I think, you it's know. It's as good as a strategy as anything. I exactly. <laughs> so that's our process. We yeah. it into <laughs> um, so that that kind of got me interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, at the time, I was studying commerce law and I really didn't like the law. Um, I found it, it just didn't really suit my personality. And the way that that degree is structured, you, you finish the commerce part after three years and then you have to do two years of pure law. And I I kind of felt, look, I definitely don't like this enough to give it two whole years of my life. Yep. So I dropped the law and switched into finance, like switched my major. And I'd love to say I never looked back, but the reality is I actually did pretty poorly at uni in finance. Like I, I wasn't, like I wanted to learn, I wanted to get better, but it didn't come naturally to me. What what came naturally to me was economics. Like I really loved that. I really loved thinking about the economy Um I love to think about businesses, but yeah, I think because I hadn't grown up with any sort of language around the share market or anything, I wasn't one of those high school kids that was doing the ASX investor um, competition or anything like that. So it took me a while to really get my head around it. Neither was I, amazingly. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't think that there's any direct, direct straight line between someone doing that and actually then ending up in the industry, to be, exactly. to be fair. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I always think, like, when I look back on it all, I just think there was a huge amount of luck. You know, it was lucky that I even found out about it as a career. Um, I sort of fell into it all. Um, I, I got my, I went for a bunch of internships. Nowhere would have me, and then I got very lucky. Um, sort of the last place I interviewed was an investment bank called Namura, mm-hmm. um, and I got an internship there, and, and that turned into a graduate position that lasted all of eighteen months because um, Namura withdrew from equities in Australia. So, uh, you know that we were all effectively made redundant which, you know, is not a bad thing to happen when you're 21 because everyone else was, you know, obviously really, really upset, whereas I was like, oh, my God, they're going to pay me for three months. You're going to pay me to leave? I know. I don't have to come to work. I can make a career out of this. Yeah. Some people do. Exactly. So I was, was, you know, kind of stoked about it. Um, And I'd also, at that point, I'd sort of figured out enough that I probably wanted to move to the buy side eventually. Um, So I just saw it as an opportunity to kind of, be really open-minded about what the next opportunity for me might be. Mm. And, again, the role of luck comes up. Um, I was lucky enough that a guy that I'd worked with at Namura, similar age to me, really good friend, he went to Fidelity. He was raving about it. So I applied to go there as well. Uh, I remember my interview with Kate Howard. She She's amazing and she, you know, she really stood out in the interview as you, you meet so few women in, in these positions and, and I immediately thought, I really want to work for this lady. Um, and Paul Taylor, he was also obviously um, an incredible investor. So, again, I got lucky that they took a chance on someone who really still at that time didn't really know what they were doing. 
and it was a great place to learn on the buy side because you know they they have a lot of resources you suddenly you're flying around the world you're meeting with management teams uh you're meeting with a lot of portfolio managers that run global funds you a lot of really smart analysts and you just you know you're really thrown in the deep end but i quite liked that Mm. uh so i did that for a few years and then again the role of luck uh, I heard somebody, a friend of mine, absolutely raving about John Sevior and Airly and saying that they were looking for an analyst. So I put my hand up for that, had a lot of meetings with him and everyone at Airly. And then Matt joined as well. So I met with Matt. And actually, we laugh about it now because Matt then years later told me that his first impression of me in the interview was that I was quote unquote cray cray. Um, <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> and, and so he. Um, we kind of hold it up as an example now of maybe you can't always judge someone by your first impression of them. I'm hopeful that he jokes about it now because he doesn't think I'm cray-cray anymore. But um, maybe I'm just a terrible interviewer. I'm not sure. I'm an absolute savage one. uh, I I know what you mean. If I actually haven't had an interview since 2009. I've managed to get away with UBS 2009. That was the last actual formal interview that I did. The rest has just been on network and, and people know. Well, I think so. the games change while you've been away because I think- when I, I interview people now, I'm always amazed at how smart younger people are these days and how they answer questions that I would not have been able to answer at their age. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. They're all getting, all getting right. Now, let's go into early um, the business it actually, it actually was. So thank you for that overview of, of what you're all about and how you how you got into there, um, which is good because we get a lot of young people who do want to know about sort of how do I actually start, how do mm. I do this. Hang on. So if you're at Nomura, mm. you would have been there with Marty Wet. I was, yes. Okay. And yes. what was he doing at Nomura at that time? He was, he was, what was um, he like? He, he was great. Yeah, okay. he was great. Um, yeah. No, Marty, I, now, now he of, was very friendly and like, you know, I was the – a nobody like you could not be a bigger nobody than me and the more you know I was 20 straight out of uni my first job and he you know stands out as somebody that was willing to give anyone in the organization his time um time of day yeah which you know he's still he's still very much like that gives us a lot of time uh Marty Martin Wetton uh head of FX and fixed income strategy at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia so funny that sort of comes around there too CBA (laughs) the big yellow uh washes over all of us um, which is good. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a great guy. Always has lots of time. Really good friend of the show mm. too, which is great. Now, let's talk about early the business. So what's the connection? So I'm, we're in the Magellan offices now. Mm-hmm. And this will be a good overview. So we're, we're sitting in the Magellan offices now. What's the connection between early and Magellan? Yeah. So I joined early in 2016 and we were a standalone boutique at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt joined around the same time. So Matt and John had worked together for years at Perpetual John left Perpetual, started up early in 2012. I came on board, as did Matt, in 2016. And then two years later, they sold the business to Magellan. Uh, The reason for that was, you know, when you're running a boutique, especially at that time, that time was, you know, compliance in particular, like all this back office stuff was just becoming more and more. um, Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, more and more of an imposition on John's time in particular, and he just wanted to be focusing on investing. Yep. So, you know, I guess he took a view that the industry was consolidating and that he wanted to play a role in that. And what Magellan brought to the table was, you know, firstly the the ability to bring a retail product to market, which which is the fund that I work on, the Early Australian Share Fund. We wouldn't have been able to do that on our own. You know, Magellan have world-class sales and distribution and marketing teams. Yeah. Um, so that was very helpful. And then all the other back office functions that were really becoming quite onerous for us as a small boutique, they were able to take that all on for us and, and it just freed up the team's time to focus on investing. So they have delivered on all of that in yeah. spades. Okay. So, so you've got, you mentioned that you launched the Australian Share Fund. Mm. We'll just call it the AASF. AASF, uh, yes. Uh, not the ASF. Um, but that's... That, that, is, that <laughs> is the colloquial term. You love it. I love well, it. Well, we just launched a small caps company that's the ASCO, so that's oh, wow. the ASCO. See, that's much better. So... <laughs> that's, that's a better acronym than uh, than anything else that's going on. That's Okay, okay. So, so with the uh, ASF, uh, so talk about the process of how you come. So you're a bottom-up, what's known as a bottom-up. Yeah. 
manager yep. and how so run us through the process that you would have for yeah that. sure so we we start with the balance sheet and that's a yes or a no mm-hmm. um and we toggle it you know some people will say oh we'll loan invest in businesses with i don't know net debt to ebitda below two and a half times or something whereas for us it's around what's the business model so if you're a retailer yep. two and a half times net debt to ebitda that is a highly geared balance sheet yep for a business that has a lot of natural operating leverage in it. So for a retailer, we pretty much want to see as close to net cash as you can get. Yep. Uh, Unless you're something like a Wes Farmers where you're very diversified. Yeah, Uh, Wes Farmers is the exception to a lot of rules with it. Exactly. I mean, that said, they've got a fantastic balance sheet too, but they'd be about one times net to EBITDA, whereas, yeah, we know the other retailers we own, say, are Premier Investments, $400 in net cash. So that... um, that's how we would look at a retailer. Whereas if you're expecting a net cash balance sheet when you're looking at a toll road, you know, that's a really lazy balance sheet. That's not the optimal financial structure for that business model. So yeah. we we don't have a hard and fast rule for what right looks for us in terms of a balance sheet. Yep. We really depends on the nature of the business model, how much of their earnings is outside their control, which is another way of saying how cyclical, how cyclical are earnings. Yep. You know, we we quite like cyclicals. You can make a lot of money in cyclicals. If you time it right, but I think the the precursor for that for us is a business that has a ton of cash. So you know, if you take a point in time right now where I think the consensus view is we're heading into some form of downturn, uh, we have no differentiated view on that. We're not macro investors. I think it, that that as a consensus view certainly appears reasonable given all the data that we can all see. Um, but if you think you are heading into a downturn, you really want to know that you own companies that have really strong financial positions, not only because of downside protection, which is obviously important, but also because in a downturn, businesses that have great balance sheets are going to have a lot more optionality. And I don't think, you know, a downturn, it's not forever. uh, And it's been a very long time in Australia since we've had, you know, severe protracted downturn. But it's kind of like a bushfire in the sense that you do um, expose, uh, you know, during, during a bull market, there's a lot of misallocation of capital. And I think we're seeing that now in little things like milk run the other day going um, bust and, you know, businesses that that aren't necessarily going to generate a return through the cycle when the price of money isn't free. Mm. So a downturn can be quite good for big business models. You know, take a Woolworths, for example. If, if the milk runs of the world were able to be fully funded and chip away at what is a very low margin business already and just chip away at the profitability of that, that's a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a good thing for the incumbent if money isn't free. Uh, and so I don't think, you know, the types of businesses that we're investing in, we think they should actually come out the other side of any downturn in a stronger position. Yeah. Um, so that's the balance sheet. The second and third thing that we're looking at is business quality and management quality. And then the final thing we're looking at is valuation. And I've kind of separated that way. So there's four things we're looking at, but I've separated the first thing of balance sheet because that's got to be a yes for us. And then the other three, it's really about trade-offs. Okay. So in Australia, well, anywhere, but we all know the Aussie market really well. If a company is a really good balance sheet, it's got a great quality business, it's got a cracking management team, and all of that's really obvious to everyone, those are usually the most expensive stocks. You know, the market's pretty efficient. It's pretty pretty good at pricing these things um, for their prospects. And our fund is not necessarily around finding the best companies in Australia and just buying them at any price. For us, we really want to find situations where that those trade-offs look positively skewed to us, where maybe the quality of the business isn't being reflected in the valuation or maybe, uh, you know, and you wouldn't want a whole portfolio of these, but if you had a couple of turnarounds in there where the valuation is sort of reflecting a very poor performing business for a long time, but there's some sort of reason whether that be new management or a new strategy to believe that the business is going to improve yeah i want to come back around to this yeah, yeah. Go on. and it's going to re-rate accordingly so that yeah. might be another scenario um so we're looking at kind of just a little bit a little bit more complex like i could rattle off we all could, could rattle off the best businesses in australia you know rea um uh businesses like rea car sales seek resmed you know they're they're cracking businesses we all know that but for us Often what we'll do is put those businesses on a watch list and then just hope that we get a chance, a hiccup or a big market drawdown, and then then they come your way from yep. a valuation perspective. They don't always. No. Um, and, you know, REA's come our way a few few times and we've been too greedy and missed it every time. So we owned it once briefly and then, you know, like idiots sold it thinking it was overvalued and it's gone on to 
ever higher multiples. So, you know, that that's one way you can play it. It's it's being patient and waiting until that valuation piece starts looking compelling. Yep. Um, but that's what I mean. You know, we're assessing these factors. It's dynamic. Sometimes the, you do all this work. And this has actually been the story of, you know, maybe pre-COVID, you had these ever grinding lower of interest rates for the last decade and that just saw valuations ever grind higher and that was quite a frustrating environment for us because you find all these businesses you do all this work and then they're falling over at that valuation piece for you because they just look like fair value or they look like overvalued so you know the last 12 months it's been very tumultuous but we're now starting to find you know some more absolute value ideas that are looking compelling so that's kind of how that all works with respect to our process so the uh, going into the uh, uh, Heath, jump in anytime you want, mate. But I'm just going to keep going. If if no not. worries, the uh, just coming coming together with the idea generation. So you just mentioned if there was a rewrite, uh, a rewrite in a company that was potentially ahead. If you had a part of the business that potentially had been undervalued that might have been turning around, mm. how does the idea for that come to light? Someone's actually got to put that in front yeah. of you and say, okay, so the, the value it ticks all the boxes on this, mm-hmm. but there's this bit in here that's just going to spark it. Yep. And this is the this is the pitch and this is the presentation. How does yep. it how does how does that come to fruition? Well, we've got a team of fantastic analysts. So they so the way it works, we are a smaller team compared to some of the larger teams in the market, but that's also by design because I having experience at you know, I've been an analyst for a very long time and I've done the waterfront coverage thing where you've got a very small coverage list and you rate everything in that coverage list. Mm. And I've done the broader generalist thing where you've got three, four, five sectors and you're looking at fifty stocks. I personally for my temperament as an investor, prefer the latter because I think a portfolio manager, they're always thinking about the opportunity cost of investing in BHP versus every other stock in the market, not BHP versus any other resource stock. So I think if you, as an analyst, if you're too narrow, you can sometimes, you know, miss the wood for the trees. Not always. Great analysts, you know, can can definitely do the other model. It just didn't work that well for me. Yep. So we've structured our analyst team along similar lines where you'll be covering a couple of sectors, two or three sectors, 30 to 40 stocks, um, and it's the analyst's job to really be on top of all this stuff and, and surfacing ideas. The other layer from a top-down perspective is I work with Matt Williams, who's been around for 25 years. A lot of the time, uh, you know, he's kind of directing traffic as well if he thinks something looks interesting and he wants the analyst to do a bit more work on it, uh, then maybe sometimes it's the idea is kind of um, the idea is flagged by him and then we work on it. I'll give you an example of one, I think, in this turnaround category. Uh, so our analyst, Joe Wright, he covers the insurers and we've never owned QBE. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt's, I don't think he's ever owned QBE in, in all his um, permutations of his funds over the years. And we probably would have just kept going like that. It's been the right call not to own it. But Joe uh, really banged the table on it. He said, what's changed here is the new CEO. He's got a very good uh, background. He's come from a competitor, QBE, Beasley, that has a very good reputation what matters in insurance is underwriting and your attitude towards risk. And old QBE had this view that you wanted to diversify globally so that anything that was happening in anyone's small people, the lights have gone out. The lights um, have gone out. It's fine. It's just because we haven't been moving. That's all. That's right. That's um, sensible. It's, it's environmentally friendly because yeah, we're not, we don't need the room. Exactly. Yeah, so it's part of your ESG policy. <laughs> um, so the old QBE would sort of, try to diversify away the risk of any one jurisdiction blowing up on them by, you know, buying a lot of businesses and being, being everything to everyone. But what that meant when you were going out and doing these acquisitions was you bought a whole business, bunch of businesses that have very different attitudes towards risk, different underwriting qualities, uh, and every year you just had something blowing up in your portfolio. And so the business was viewed as a black box by investors. It was very opaque. It was um, kind of seen as this perennial underperformer. So... Joe's work and Joe's conviction there is effectively why we bought it. Uh, you know, and we, you know, went on the journey. He took us on the journey of the work that he'd done. We also obviously have to meet with management ourselves. I've actually just come back from um, two weeks in Europe and, and some of the meetings that we had were also around QBE, understanding the international business and their reputation in the London market and also understanding the new CEO, Andrew, his reputation in the London market as well. And he is very well respected by people who've worked with him before. And it's a small industry. Everyone knows each other. And and people really rave about him. So that was kind of the catalyst, you know. This is a perennial underperformer that investors have just thrown out. But you've got a new guy in charge. He's going to turn around, fix the business. Um, Insurance is really a nuts and bolts business. So you need 
you need that kind of nuts and bolts attitude. And when you meet with him, he's kind of like the kind of guy you want to see running an insurance business. Like he, you know, he seems very boring. sensible. Sorry. <laughs> very boring. I don't want to say, I no, would say, you know, like a, a li- librarian type. Well, yeah. Someone who, someone who, someone who knows what risk is about. An actuary. An actuary. That's the word I was looking for. An actuary. Actuary. Yeah. Actually, I've got a quick question. It's actually a two-part question for you there, Emma. Mm -hmm. Um, It's um, you said before you guys, you're not macro guys, but um, uh, you do believe there's a drawdown coming. Um, Do you guys, will you guys carry, look to carry a lot more cash moving forward then looking for opportunities um, if there's something around, you think something, you know, terrible is going to happen around the corner or, Mm. you know, is it purely valuation-based that you'll leave a stock Mm. um, as well? And also, you know, most people are good buyers of stock or can be good buyers of stock, but the selling side is, is I think, the hard part, um, knowing when to sell, et cetera. <laughs> so is it, is it just a purely valuation-based um, sell side thesis for you guys or um, do you do play into the macro side as well and say, okay, mm. we think there's a recession coming in Australia and maybe we build up our cash a little bit? That's a really good question. So, so with respect to cash, we have a 10% cash limit in our fund and I typically try to run it between 5 to 6%. And the reason we have a 10% cash limit is because if we could go above that, I would probably get it wrong. And then if I do get it wrong in terms of a big cash rating at the wrong time, that's going to overshadow any good stock picking that I do. Good point. So I think they're two separate skill sets. Being able to pick stocks, I think I've had enough evidence that I can do that reasonably well. I've got zero evidence that I can pick macro, that I can, you know, in fact, I could probably pick the macro, i.e. what's going to happen next, but i I reckon I will be wrong every time on what it means for markets. Like, yep. I always go back to that that COVID period where if you'd known at the very first time you heard the word coronavirus, if you could have predicted that as many people would have died as they would have, that, you know, we would have been locked in Australia for three years, that, you know, that any of these things would have played out, you would have gone, you know, 100% cash. You probably would have taken your money out and stuck it on the mattress and you would have missed, like, the biggest bull market of the last right. decade. Yep. So. The world is so complex and all these factors, you know, really interplay with each other. So I just don't back myself to get the call right. It's that first that, that first and second derivative that comes exactly. from the event. Like you and which is which is a big I mean, that's a big thing in investing mm. to be able to get to that stage. Because yeah. anyone anyone and you see that the media does this a lot, where they say, This is a disaster that's looming. Yeah. There's, there's a reason why we changed the name of this show to the theory of thing. Because the media will say there's this disaster that's looming. Look at the disaster. And and what everyone's just, oh, there's a, we have to short the market, get out, um, because there's this huge thing that's ahead. It's just like if we've all just been talking about it and the market is it's still going, it's in the price. 100%. It's done. The theory of thing is very much in play. Yeah. It's it's now a thing. It's not a surprise. It's not a black swan. Exactly. And so it's now, it's 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 definitely, it's part of the cake. Yeah. So we're. I totally agree. Yeah. So, I totally agree. And that's why, you know, to answer your question directly, even though I'd say yeah, my base case is a slowdown, it wouldn't be a recession, but a slowdown. Yep. I'm unlikely to then reflect that in some sort of cash position because that is the base case of the market. If everyone was like, things are going so hot from here, it's all back on, it's the roaring 20s, baby, and I was feeling like, oh, hang on a second, I disagree with that, I think a slowdown's coming, that might be different because you might have a different narrative priced into markets, mm-hmm. but the consensus view right now this has got to be the most well-heralded recession of all time if indeed it even happens. Yeah. So that matters because consumers have had years to expect it, years now to expect it um, and tighten their belts. doesn't mean they will, but it's it's not going to come out of nowhere. Uh, the headlines are so gloomy right now, so the incremental move isn't going to be from super bullish to super gloomy. It's going to be from super gloomy to a bit gloomier. Mm. Uh, so I just... You know, and there are other reasons why I'm not a doomsday prepper uh, with respect to what a downturn might look like. And again, take all these views with a grain of salt because I'm, you know, I'm not positioning a portfolio this way, and I'm probably going to be wrong. But the thing, the thing that I look at that makes me the most positive is corporate debt in Australia is so low. So if you look at the lead up to the GFC, corporate um, net debt to EBITDA across the board in Australia was two and a half times. So when the GFC hit, not only did you have high starting valuations, so two measures of risk, 
starting valuations and debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had high starting valuations and you had a high level of debt. So the equity market experience was terrible uh, because, you, you know, take the REIT sector, for example, your experience as an equity investor was determined by where you sat in the capital stack. And we all find out that we rank below debt investors mm-hmm. when, you know, the debt investors want their money back and you can't refinance. So the fact that we're going into a downturn, which is an if, but a consensus downturn, heading into it with balance sheets, you know, net debt to EBITDA is now 1.3 times. So it's much lower. Is this over the 200? This is the ASX 200 excluding financials and resources. Got it. Um, and I exclude those because I think, they, you know, financials are obviously going to really skew it. But, yeah. um, uh, and resources, you know, they've generated a lot of cash. That's just, if you include resources, it pulls it down further. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so industrials. Yes. Industrial yeah, okay. Companies. Okay, yeah, that's, that, that makes sense. Um, okay. Well, sorry, where was it? One and a half? 1.3. 1.3. 1.3. Yeah. So for our portfolio, which you'd expect because we've got this balance sheet filter, that number is 0.99. So we're even more conservative than um, the index. But I just don't see a debt, corporate debt buildup in Australia. Um, so I think any – and that matters because we're equity investors. So I don't think that a down – you know, famous last words, but I just don't see a downturn for the share market being – anywhere near as protracted or as severe for equity investors as as we've seen in some of these big drawdowns of the last, um, you know, 20, 30 years. But, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not having some bullshy portfolio view on that. That's just my two cents for what it's worth. Bullshy portfolio view. I'm going to write that down. That's that's cracking. Uh, Heath, mate, do you want to keep going? Uh, yeah, I was just more concentrating on on the the, the sell side of things, and sell, yeah. you know, do you have do you have any triggers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that you see in a company that say, all right, we've got to take some off the top here and mm-hmm. uh, reallocate it? Yeah, so I'll give you an example of where you know I think everyone, most people say, oh, we're bottom up investors, we don't take a view on the macro. Everyone takes a view on the macro. You're implicitly taking a view on the macro in the in the exposures that you're willing to take in a portfolio. Hmm. What we don't do is say, I think inflation is going up, so let's just shove the portfolio through all the full of inflation winners. You're thinking more inductively, I suppose. You're saying, if inflation goes up, how does the portfolio look? Who's exposed to that? What's their financial strength situation? Blah, blah, blah. What's their pricing power? If it goes down, you're running the same scenario. So you're just kind of, you know, analysing the portfolio through that lens. Mm-hmm. So one more macro-led decision with respect to when we sold some things would have been in December, January this year. So if I look at last year, our portfolio, the first six months of the year, we had a pretty tough time actually. We underperformed the market. And what had happened was like we'd, we'd made a lot of a lot of the right call over the last few years prior to that where we'd um, had some cracking numbers was due to owning a lot of consumer-facing stocks at, because they were generating so much cash and it was going to their balance sheets and and I think people were too quick to get bearish on the consumer sector um, and we really got that call right. But rather than taking a lot of that exposure off when uh, interest rates started to increase, borders opened, so we had an alternative of where we were going to spend our money, we, you know, I always say the most dangerous force in investing is inertia. Uh, so, you know, rather than connecting the dots and taking some of this these winnings off the table, we were patting ourselves on the back. Mm. And we retraced some of that, not all of it, some of it. So then to June, we found ourselves with businesses that we own. So I'll give you some examples. Nick Scarly went from 15 bucks to $7.50 in June. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Premier Investment, similar story, West Farmers. Um, we then turned around and added to those because we thought, okay, well, it's not not as we're just not seeing the Armageddon that the market's now pricing in. Yep. And that ended up being, I guess, the right call because the next six months, we had a cracking time and mm. they were the biggest drivers of that. So then we found ourselves in December and January. You're looking at a business like Nick Scully, it got back to $12.50. And we just thought to ourselves, you know, the reason that everyone got so existentially worried about these stocks, those reasons haven't gone away. If anything, they're probably looking to be bang on in terms of, you know, fiscal cliff and the consumer's got to slow down from here and, you know, rates have risen. And so we just thought, you know, probably to take some off the table then. So we, we really reduced our position in Nick Scarly um, and some of our other consumer exposures as well. As well. Yeah. Um, so that kind of gives you, I've managed to pick one, I guess, a sector that I've ended the story with us coming out as heroes, but I could equally give you as many examples <laughs> as not coming out as heroes. Yeah. Um, but it, it gives you, an, I guess, an example of how sometimes we use the macro to influence our um, thinking, but it's really more around that that 
valuation equation of what's the value on offer here. Like at $7.50, we're willing to take on the macro. Um, even though we think it's probably right, mm. we're saying, okay, this is a business with net cash, so it's going to survive a downturn. It's a great business, it's got a long store all that profile, it's got a cracking management team. So we'll take on the macro here, we'll take on the cycle. That's what's giving us the opportunity. Yep. But equally, at $12.50, it's not pricing in a downturn that is probably more likely than not to come. Yep. So that's kind of how we think about it. We really use the valuation to tell us what expectations are. Yeah, and that, that, that's a really good way of putting it. And if you do come back to that that same fair value area, where if, if, if your fair value is above where, this, where the price is, it starts to be a box ticket for you. And if it's below, then it's hard to think about that, that, that what exactly is priced in for the future. Yes. Effectively, I've just said what you said back to you. So yeah. There you go. No, That's I, part of the gift. I, it's, yeah. <laughs> I find I agree with people that quote me back to myself. Thank you. Think, oh, <laughs> you sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's, that's a good. great example. Great example. Yeah. Cheers to that. Uh, now, moving on, let's talk about, I mean, it's been it's been in the papers and it'd be crazy yeah. if, I didn't, if I didn't mention it. So, John, uh, I was pronouncing it wrong this entire time. How did you pronounce it? Sevior. Sevior. Oh, my mum calls him John Savoir. So. I was going to say John Savoir. John Savoir. I've been learning. I've been doing French, and so everything's yeah. got a bit of a French, uh, a French tone on it. So it, John Savoir um, is checking out from mm-hmm. the industry completely. Legend mm-hmm. in the industry, three decades, exactly. thirty-six years, yeah. an illustrious uh, career. An illustrious career. Uh, and there was a couple of fun, one big fun. So Hester decided to, that that it was going to take the opportunity to to shift. Um, how what, what's the view going forward for for Ailey without John mm. and and how like like do you see any more of that coming up? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I would say you know John retiring. You know, there's no story there beyond the fact that he's been doing it for a long time and yep. he wants to do. You know, he wants to retire. Yeah. Um, I won't embarrass him by revealing his age. He doesn't look his age, but you know, it's the age at which people decide they want to retire. Yeah. Um, so there's no story there. Uh, and then, you know, a good, so any fund manager always has to be thinking about succession. We're no different. We've always had a plan in place, uh, around succession. We have been lucky. We feel, you know, not every organization has, has the, um, you know, the, the luck to find themselves in a situation where the guy that can take over is, you know, an equal to the guy that's leaving. And Matt and John have worked together for the bulk of their careers. I think John's done it for maybe three or four years longer than Matt. So Matt's also got 25 years' experience, um, cracking long-term performance. He's an incredible investor. He's a Hall of Fame investor, as is John. So, you know, we're really lucky that we had two of them in the organisation and Matt immediately stepped up to the plate because we've always had to have a succession plan in place. We have a new succession plan in place that's just part of uh, you know, that's just part of running a, a fund manager. Yeah. Um, you know, they're great businesses, but they are fragile. You know, they have inherent key man risk in them. So it's, you, it's always top of my list too. Whenever yeah, I, so any fund that I'm talking to when I'm going through my allocations, it always comes down to key person. It's one of the, exactly. one of the early questions that I ask or one of the ones that I try and drag out yeah, to try exactly. and find out. So, you know, so John leaves, Matt steps up as head of equities, I become deputy head of equities. And then again, when I say like we've got a new succession plan in place, what that means is, Every single day, we're always making sure that we're thinking about the future. Mm. So, you know, it's it's about bringing the analysts up as well and developing them and talking to them about their career goals. We've just launched a small cap product with one of our analysts, Will Granger, running that. So, um, and that that launched two weeks ago. So, that's sort of how we how we've tackled the succession. Um, and you know that the the newspaper articles about outflows. Uh, so Matt. Matt runs institutional mandates, John runs his institutional mandates, and then we I have this um, retail fund, the AASF, uh, that Matt is sort of the deputy portfolio manager on. Yep. And then so as you'd expect in a succession event, John's clients were given the option to come across to us and remain with the business. Some of them have elected to do that and some of them have elected not to. Yep. Like that's the end of the story. Um that's 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 it. That's, that, that is the story. That's the nature of the beast, isn't it? That you're always it, people are going to come and people are going to go. Exactly, and you know this is funnily enough the second time in his career that Matt's taken over from John retiring. This is a retirement retirement, yeah. but the first time was perpetual. John left perpetual. Matt stepped up as head of equities. Yeah. 
they lost some farm, they rebuilt from there. Yeah. So that's that's sort of exactly how we're thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, Perpetual didn't exactly take a huge backward step. Uh, no, exactly. It. And I, I mean, like I, I was talking to you this before we started recording, but, you know, at a personal level, um, I want to do this for decades. Like I'm so passionate about investing. I love coming to work. I love working with Matt. We have such a great team. We have such a great culture. We're having so much fun doing it. Um, so I want to do this for decades. I want all of our investors to make a lot of money and have a lot of fun along the way. So, you know, we're, we're feeling really good about the future of Ailey. Okay. Um, no, that's good. I, I, I believe you. I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, no, no problem there. Now let's, uh, let's talk about making money for some people. Again, obviously general advice in nature on this one, and, and you don't have to get specific unless you don't want to, but let's talk about what the future is for the Australian market. Um, and I know there's always going to be some guys who say, "Oh, give us a stock, give us a stock." But what, what sort of directions do you see ahead for us, just going in for, for the next for the next twelve years, the investable future, as I like? Yeah, to call it. for the next twelve years. Well, I, twelve I, months. Sorry, sorry, twelve months. <laughs> twelve years. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, why don't I give an answer to both? Okay. Um, you know what? When I think, when I step back and think about Australia, you know, this comp, this view of us as the lucky country, and it just keeps coming true. You know, the sure does. I was just writing our quarterly report. Um, and so I'm quoting myself disgustingly in saying what I'm about to say, but basically... You sound like me. <laughs> we, um, the history of the Australian economy has been one that oscillates between boom and muddle through. Yep. It's not a boom and bust economy, or it hasn't been really, because we have some you know, really important dynamic stabilisers. We're a small open economy with a floating exchange rate, and we sell a lot of stuff to the rest of the world that they want, and they want a lot of it right now. Uh, and, you know, commodities, for example... Obviously, everyone's well across the iron ore story, but if you look at the total value of lithium exports last year, they're, they're coming close to something like 20% of the value of iron ore exports. And two years ago, they were zero. Yeah. So again, and, you know, we're pretty nascent in our lithium journey. So again, we've been the lucky country. You know, what, what happens to be in our backyard is the stuff that everyone is scrambling to get. So I'm, you know, you're seeing uh, even in the paper today, you're seeing the, the resources minister talking about the government's attitudes towards wanting to build out the battery supply chain. Um, and it sounds reading between the lines like there might be some, you know, government support for businesses that want to invest here. Yep. Uh, and and again, I'm, I'm so I'm really bullish long term Australia. I, I As I said, I just get, came back from two weeks in Europe and so we were on a CSL, primarily on a CSL investor day um, over in Europe, and there was about 100 investors there. And so, you know, you're chatting to other investors. And what was really interesting to me was they got into a couple of conversations with people who live in Australia who didn't grow up here, who grew up in other countries. And, you know, in chatting with them, I've said, oh, would you ever move back? And all of them, um, for the various countries that they came from, you know, these are, you know, wealthy Western economies, said, no, because the economic situation in that country is so dire or the, the it's just a better life for my kids here. Um, and, so, you know, it was at, at the same time I'm having these conversations, the AFR is having articles about how we've, you know, really turned the taps back on for migration. But I just think the relative strength of our economy um, and what a beautiful place it is to live in the world, we're always going to kind of be able to write our own ticket with respect to um, migration. And that's a really powerful force, certainly a really powerful relative force as well. You know, yeah. when you think of population growth, fertility rates are declining globally. Um, you know, you look at the, the demographics in China, for example, and compare them to Australia where, you know, it's not as though the fertility rate is doing much of the heavy lifting, but we've had really attractive population growth as a function of net migration. And I think that will continue. We all build these DCF models where we're modelling out things, you know, for 10 years and then into perpetuity and so much of the terminal value is is driving the valuation of stocks. And we all plug this, you know, between 2 to 3% terminal growth rate assumption that drives so much of the value. And if you ever stop and think about how likely that is to, you know, occur mm. for the next 10, 20 years to, to drive these cash flows, I think in a country like Australia where you can probably count on one and a half to two percent population growth that makes that a lot more likely to occur that yeah. covers a lot of that um assumption i hate to talk about humans as as sort of things DCF, <laughs> dcf yeah it, but the it sort of does work a little bit like the the floating exchange rate that we've got you can it it, it, it will sort of solve its own problem with you know if things are going good everything's sort of you know, full up and, and at capacity, then then we can sort of turn that immigration down. And then you've got something like now where they actually want to ramp it up, yep. open it up and let's go. Same way a, a cheap Aussie dollar will actually help us in the long run and then expensive will just oh, balance itself out. 
Yeah. Or am I just talking complete nonsense? No, no, yeah. I completely agree with okay. that. Um, now, so yes, it's all just going to be a model through, model through sort of situation for us going that forward. One, so that was. I'm just going to write by 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 BHP here. Is the only thing yeah. I'm going to get out of it? Any, my twelve so. month pitches are, you know, I think the shorter your time frame, the harder it is to is guess, and it is a guess. Yeah. Guess what happens? All I do is kind of take stock of what's the consensus view because I think that's going to be the view that's priced into markets mm-hmm. and then make some sort of judgment call on how likely I think that consensus view is to play out. So I'd say the consensus view right now is fiscal cliff, um, th- you know, things where at the pointy end of the rate tightening cycle, now's the time where things start to go bump in the night, which is what we're seeing globally with SVB, with Credit Suisse. Um, so we're probably closer to the end than the start of a tightening cycle. Yep, uh, well, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So it'd be weird if it was if it was going to keep on going. That'd but, be a real situation. Said, you know, like so the the RBA paused, but they've paused before and kept going. So I again, like I'm just throwing it out there that I'm never too sure about what the next twelve months holds. Yeah. There are a lot of really, you know, um, a lot of X factors that can kind of come to play. I, I always bring it down to those two measures of risk for me as starting valuations and balance sheets. Yep. Um, balance sheets are looking great right now, so I'm not worried about that. Um, and then starting valuations look more reasonable than they have in the past. Not crazy value, though. That's that's what makes it, it a bit hard to, to, to be too bullish as well. It's the fact that for so long the dynamic for equity markets underpinning things was the Tina effect of there is no, no alternative. alternative. Now there is an alternative, many alternatives, yeah. and a lot of them are yielding a lot more than, you know, these stalwarts of the ASX and their dividends. Yeah, so, which is good. Yeah, like, I, I mean... For the 60-40 portfolio that I told everyone to get into at the end of last year. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, when you think about that, right? So you've got you've got your bonds part of your portfolio paying you, a, a, you know, almost risk-free return that's yeah. attractive. Why do you need that from your equities portfolio? So there's another way of saying, like, you know, I, I don't want to pick on a stock we don't own, but, you know, the Telstra's of the world through that lens, I think, look quite uncompelling to me. Yeah. Um, because they are low growth and really all you're getting is a dividend. Pretty much the same story for the banks, actually. You know, the the total shareholder return piece of that will probably be from the dividend. I don't really see their earnings going anywhere um, on a two- to three-year view. Yeah, um, it's interesting. So Mims, Mims maxed, out, maxed out, you think, on the... Yeah, okay. yeah. And okay. then it's always tough for them to tackle their cost base and, and get any sort of, um, get much of a lever that way. Okay. So, again, like, I don't... This is not a situation with banks where I'm painting this doomsday scenario of you're going to see this bad debt cycle. I don't think recession is never priced into banks. When we talk about consensus narratives and, you know, the bad news is priced in, if you think there's going to be a recession, if you think unemployment's going to 7%, you do not want to play that through the banks. You could make a case for having a position in a business like Nick Scarlett because you know it's going to survive to the other side mm-hmm. because of its, um, you know, the strength of its balance sheet and, and the quality of the business. But, you know, banks are very levered, um, levered, instruments as we're seeing you know in europe and the u.s right now so if if sorry go on yeah so you can tell we own cba we own NAB, but we are massively underweight versus the index in the big four banks but i think you can tell through that positioning that you know the fact that we even own two of them that that you know a bad debt cycle is not our base case excellent uh heath have you got anything else that's on there otherwise otherwise i'm just going to do a quick uh, a quick pitch on this one. We are sponsored by the Australian Mutual Funds Exchange, uh, an amazing uh, product that allows you to have access to mutual funds around the world, here and around the world. Um, it effectively connects to the M Funds Exchange that uh, that the ASX is potentially going to be winding down as well. But if you wanted to get access to a fund like Early or like any of the other funds that we've mentioned here or in India or anywhere around the world, then go and check out amfex.com and uh, get a login and have a bit of a play around with it. It's a good way to do it. It's not actually direct access to it. It's a CFD over the back of it at an exact one-for-one, one. so it's not actually levered. It's an amazing product. It's an amazing thing that they've got. Yeah, but it means it means you can pull up any fund and compare them and see what's oh, the underlying. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, in, this, in the spirit of shameless plugs, I should also say that the AASF is also listed on the stock exchange, so um, it can, like, be a quite a – and. It's that's an, L- active, an LIC. Well, it's active, an active ETF. Yeah, okay. So the benefit of that is it's not going to trade at a discount or a premium. It's bang, um, on, the, bang on the nerve. Exactly. Yep. So yep. it's open-ended. Yes, yes. Uh, unless some fat-fingered financial planner in Adelaide <laughs> decides to dump it on the market or ramp it up and completely screw up your charts, which... Uh, I, I dropped my lunch on my keyboard once. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't naming names, but we all know who it is. And, and, and please, a message out there to anyone who's who's doing it, 
if you want to if you want to do something in an ETF, don't do anything in the first half hour of the day. Make sure that you know the price and don't just go and hit the other side of the spread. Let's just try and keep it normal market for everyone, please. If you don't, go and find an adult and ask them how you're supposed to put the trade on because there's people who just stuff things up and we do take advantage of it sometimes. And, and you know, if you see it, you see an ETF that's absolutely trading at completely the wrong price, one of the market makers is stuffed up. It happens all the mm-hmm. time. They know who they are. We take advantage of that too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's a whole different story. Um, and and that's, so that, that's the, uh, the Australian Mutual Funds Exchange, which is cool, Amfix, um, which is great. Now, I'm about to drop my portfolio manager who has been giving me some footy tips. So, um, uh, David, you know who you are. Heath, now you managed to go two from two from two last week. Yeah, two from two. Two from two. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to try and back that up? I'll go double double or nothing on this on, on yeah. tips on tips here. Now um we'll get into this. Uh, and so so what's your best tip that you've got, Heath? Uh really, really simple one this week. I think uh, the pies to win one to thirty nine. The market okay. one to thirty nine. Yep. Paying about two twenty, so you're gonna double your money. Okay, that's not too bad. So that's yeah. uh that's absolutely it. Now, um, David's shot me. Now, I'm, you know those things where you just stick with the same PM, the same person who's, who's doing it. I'm about to move some allocation from him. He's absolutely a dud. I'm probably just going to start taking this on myself, which is the equivalent of sort of moving out from a managed uh, a managed account into my own Comsec account because I reckon I could do it better. <laughs> so uh, he's gone. He's, here are some tips for you. Dragons plus six and a half. He likes the Bulldogs plus eight and a half. The Titans plus ten and a half, and Storm minus four and a half to beat them. I actually like the doggies there, and I, that's one that I'm going to put the lock on. Doggies plus eight and a half there. Um, that'll be bang about market price one ninety because that's the start that he's got on that one. What have you got for us, Emma? All right, I reckon. So I've got the Swans tonight. Yes. They are playing Richmond in Adelaide. Yes. And I've got them to win plus ten. Yes, plus ten. Oh, with the with the start. Over. I don't know what I'm talking about. That's good enough. It's okay. A short answer. That's okay. Okay. That's my tip. Okay. Because I, I mean, I've got some words for Buddy Franklin the way that he played last week or didn't play last week, um, and we'll see. Uh, and and how's together round going for you over there, Heath, mate? It's it absolutely looks amazing. He's gone. Okay. Thanks, Heath. He's heard my terrible <laughs> tip, and he's just he has he has actually just dropped he's actually I've dropped off the call. Okay. All right. I think I think that that's our message that, that, that we need to do wrap it up. So uh, thank you very much for that, Emma Fisher of Early Funds Management, running the Early Australian Share Fund AASF. Um, you can find them on the market if you if you want as an active ETF, which is great. Um, they are benchmarked to the ASX 200 Accumulation Index, and they have been beating that benchmark since inception as well mm-hmm. and are just beating it on a 12-month period too i think it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 neck and neck but over a long enough time um that it's all right uh, heath is actually back on now so mate um we're just wrapping it up so thanks very much for no your worries. time uh, no thank you guys it was great great chat great to uh be emma and hear, hear about your uh, story it was fantastic thanks so much for having me guys it's a lot of fun no worries and thanks for joining us on the first season of our new show the theory of thing uh investment podcast cheers thanks. for that thanks a lot